This is the Hammer Horror Podcast. Frankenstein Edition. Part 1. The Curse of Frankenstein. Welcome to the Hammer Horror Podcast. This is our first podcast in the Frankenstein edition, where we look at the movie that started it all and created the name Hammer Horror. The opening music was brought to you by Midnight Syndicate from their album Monsters of Legend. If you'd like to head over to their website at www.midnightsyndicate.com, you can uh, find their link um, at the bottom of our website. Um, on this page here, uh, website obviously being hammerhorrorpodcast.com. I'm joined by regular podcasters, Miles Davies. Hello! And Meredith Murphy. Hello! Welcome! And, um, and as a break from our usual format of rotating hosts, um, I have you both casting your views with me across the entire Frankenstein mm. franchise, of which there were seven films made and a TV pilot to boot. But before we begin dissecting the movie itself, I'd like to discuss um, some of their background uh, leading into the birth of Hammer Horror, and in this film in particular. Uh, the, the film, obviously, is based on the novel by Mary Shelley. It made its presence known primarily in theatres to begin with, with a stage show in 1823 entitled Presumption. And it was this success which soon led to a film adaptation uh, release in 1910 by Edison Studios and lasting all of 18 minutes it would see the demise of Frankenstein's monster uh, in a mir- and something that mirrored Nosferatu where he would turn to dust albeit from his reflection rather than from sunlight um, and it would also have a happy ending in that adaptation 18 minutes and a happy ending 18 minutes and a happy ending that's how they did it in those days <laughs> Sorry, I'm <laughs> actually going in a very crude direction. They do that in some parts of the Anyway, moving swiftly on. Um, <laughs> uh, there were some other attempts that would follow, like uh, there was a lost film uh, called Life Without Soul, depicting the monster as a clay statue come to life, similar to De Gollum. Gollum. Yeah, but it wasn't until the story fell into the hands of Universal Studios that The Tale of Frankenstein truly made its mark. Directed by James Wilde and starring Boris Karloff as the monster, it soon became a cult success and with which future attempts would be measured by. Mm. Following... It is, yeah, when you look back at them. Mm. Um, certainly, certainly when I think of Fra- Frankenstein, I, I think of Boris. Boris. Yeah, it's, it's hard, hard to not... And the James Wilde classic. Mm. I mean, following uh, Frankenstein came numerous sequels to, um, with the likes of Bride of Frankenstein, mm. Son of Frankenstein... Which would see both cousin of, of yeah, <laughs> first cousin removed. Um, so um, the uh, in uh, Son of Frankenstein, we would actually see Karloff and Lugosi share screen time too, which was for the first time in that in that movie, which was quite cool. Um, there would also be the Ghosts of Frankenstein, Frankenstein meets Wolfman, and Houses of Frankenstein and Dracula, respectively. Now, after Universal had exhausted the horror franchise to the nth degree, Frankenstein's motto would soon shift into comedy territory in Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein, uh, which was released in 1948. This too would spawn a series of movies where Abbott and Costello would pit comical wits 
with other uh, horror film horror film icons, and then satire pretty much killed Frankenstein. Mm. Um, but nine years on, a little-known company would resurrect the tale, originally conceived as a follow-up on the Hammer treadmill, but associate. Producer Anthony Nelson Keyes had other intentions, one of them being the decision to shoot in colour as opposed to black and white. James Carreras' son, Michael, who was called in to be script supervisor, demanded some changes to the script. This coupled with a pending legal threat by Universal if there were any indication of material used or copied from their successful franchise meant that Hammer would have to start from scratch with the original Shelley novel. In steps Jimmy Sangster to come up with a new script, who was more interested in the character of Baron Frankenstein than that of the monster. The director and players of the piece were assembled, more on them later, and the movie went into production. Despite being panned by the British press, the public disagreed and went to see this horror movie that would create legends. The Curse of Frankenstein would soon see huge success across the pond too, with an American audience lapping it up. After three weeks, the film had made a profit. But what do the podcasters here at HHP make of the movie today? Before we cast our view, let us have a breakdown of the movie's plot. And Meredith, Miles, feel free to interject, mm-hmm. as usual, as, as we delve into the as, curse as, of Frankenstein. As, as we become accustomed to uh, <laughs> frequent <laughs> <laughs> rants and ravings. All right, so let's look at the plot. We open with a pre-narrative warning of the curse of Frankenstein. The music swells with rich orchestration. A figure is seen riding on a horse along the mountain range. The door opens to some building whereby he is greeted and taken inside through numerous doors and finally being led into the final cell. All in silence. I really like the fact that it just, you'd never really, there's no dialogue and they're just straight in there. It's and the first bit of dialogue is, is Cushing, basically. That's exactly yeah. it, yeah. And it's such a classic gothic horror opening, mm. you know, the rider, you know, yeah, yeah. The, the lunatic asylum. <laughs> That's it's right. Just ticking all the boxes. <laughs> That's exactly right. And as you've alluded, we find that we are in a lunatic asylum or or kind of an institute for the mentally ill. A sanatorium. A sanatorium, yes. Uh, The man in question is a priest, who, the writer from the previous scene, and has arrived to meet with Baron Frankenstein, a shadowy, dishevelled figure in an archway. Um, Peter Cushing, nonetheless. Um, He then threatens the priest, but soon calms down upon hearing that the priest will call upon the guard unless he complies. Now, this is where Frankenstein begins to tell his tale. We learn that he is the sole remaining member of the Frankenstein family, although a money-grabbing Aunt Sophie and her daughter Elizabeth remain. Paul Kemp arrives to become the Baron's tutor. Science would be their deepest of investigations. Lots of bubbling liquid pots and test tubes, etc., come My into effect. Laboratory dreams. <laughs> yes. Right there. Some of which, actually, uh, interesting enough, Peter Cushing would supply himself of all the equipment that was oh, on right. display, which I thought was kind of cool. That's um, as well. It's something that I've learned a lot about him too. He really takes the character to the core and would uh-huh. embellish in, in it. And I think, yeah. Look, I'm gushing. I, I love Peter Cushing, as I we all know. I think we all do, so, but, you know, yeah. really taking it to the next level. He does. A bit of set, set decoration, <laughs> set sourcing, and pouring the Ribena into the jar. I imagine he doesn't get cast very often in, in, unless you're in a, he's in a Hammer horror film, so he probably just throws... It's just kit. Yeah, it's he just goes, right, that's it, I'm yeah. going to throw everything and just collect stuff along the way, that's expecting it. the next 
Hammer horror film, I guess. That basically he needs his laboratory kit to yeah. any sort of vampire killing <laughs> Wait a minute. Now you're, it's like tick, tick. <laughs> cool. Well, we will get on to Christian in a, in a bit. Um, with the, with the uh, film, uh, so there appears to be like a dead dog in the tank of bubbling water, and the water, after the experiment has happened, the water begins to drain out. Um, then Frankenstein puts. Poor puppy. Poor puppy. I, I reckon they. Do, do you reckon did they, they, they did it for real? Because like, it looks did like. Did it in reverse? Killed the dog. Uh, no. <laughs> well, I was thinking that it, was, it looked pretty stiff in the in the when it was floating in the water. Yeah. And, and when it when it when it went down, I reckon they sedated it. They um, may have done. Because I was trying to think of what they did, and I reckon they gave them a little bit of a. Little Probably. Bit valium or something. Because he just kind of he, he, he kind of wakes up a little bit and then he's he's fine a bit. But I don't think they would drown the dog. <laughs> You'd <laughs> like to think they didn't. Time, <laughs> in the late fifties, they they did have some sort of you animal know, rights. Like they could sedate them, but they couldn't drown them. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I wanna, they draw the line at killing. <laughs> I, I want to say that I and I think I'm I'm reading this right from from memory, um, but. Uh, Robert Urquhart, who played Paul Kemp, actually ended up adopting the dog afterwards. Oh, happy. So, um, <laughs> to kind of like perform experiments on it. <laughs> <laughs> and we're talking. We're That's it. I could be completely wrong, but I seem to remember that in the back of my brain somewhere that I read that. Okay, so uh, where are we? So the the the, fish the, tank the, dra- the draining tank, and then um, Frankenstein puts a stethoscope up to the dog's body and begins to visually react. Paul, oh, it's alive. And, and they have successfully life. resurrected a dog. The puppy <laughs> We've discovered the source of life itself. <laughs> um, Frankenstein talks of reanimating life by then. Sorry, he then goes on to talk about reanimating life by building their own person from body parts. And he hatches a plan to steal a body from the gallows. They cut the body down and take back take it back to the house for experimentation. He states that it, he is going to cut off the head as it is of no use. It is at this point that Paul looks on in disdain, as you would. I love how <laughs> he hasn't really drawn the line in the sand no. previously, though. Like, like yeah, the dog okay. is fine, the yeah. notion of rather than, let's, you know, take this human, so this good human, this intelligent like, human, get rid of this head. bring them you know, as a whole back to life. Yeah. Like, no, let's play choppy choppy. Yeah, let's do the choppy choppy. Bye-bye. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's get rid of the head. He needs a head. Yeah. And then, like, so Frankenstein yeah. then disposes the head in a vat of acid, um, and this shot would not actually make it through the sensors, mm. even though we did see it because it kind of crept back in mm. after distributions, um, which is kind of interesting. Uh, this is the first real introduction um, into the cold-hearted nature of the character of Frankenstein, mm. too, like the callousness in the way that he... Just discards yeah, exactly. people, craniums, puppies. Craniums. Mistresses. Yes, indeed. We will, we will come to that. Um, so then they embalm the body and place it in a large tank. Uh, at this point, a female visitor arrives, whom we discover is Elizabeth, all grown up. Um, and be ringleted. Yes, exactly. And then when Frankenstein returns home, he, he does initially seem happy to, to receive her, but he soon turns his attention to the experimentation and he goes to the lab with Paul and displays a pair of severed hands that he's acquired. New girlfriend. New girlfriend. Body parts. Yeah, went for the hands. Yeah, talk to the hands. <laughs> uh, Paul has a um, Paul at this stage also has had enough and states that he cannot continue with the experimentation. Uh, quite coldly, Frankenstein asks Paul to leave so that he may continue. 
Um, interestingly, Paul doesn't actually leave that the establishment, though, does he? He stays on, despite going, well, I'm still going to board and breakfast here. But, uh, I'm, I'm morally <laughs> outraged, but, you know, I, I enjoy the morning crumpet. <laughs> yeah, and I, um, I love living in this awesome mansion. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, the principles began. It's the um, Mrs. Soprano defense. Yeah, yeah. She, um, exactly. she does the same thing, you know, takes, li- lives a life of luxury just and mm, does the exactly. bad shit. That's right. So, um, and then Paul asks Elizabeth to leave for fear of her safety. We discover that Frankenstein at this point and Elizabeth are engaged to marry. She says it has always been her wish to marry Frankenstein and for Frankenstein to marry her. Cut to scene with Maid and Frankenstein engaged in a passionate kiss. So clearly his intentions aren't honourable. There's there's a haunting moment um, that follows this when Elizabeth says that she wants to help um, Frankenstein with his experimentations. And he callously looks her up and down, raising her chin with his hand as if inspecting her, and then says, You never know, my dear, perhaps you will someday. Uh, See, for me, that's where it was like, he's definitely a bad egg. He's casing for body parts. Although that was a very thrilling scene. She won't miss a limb here or there. No, who does? Who does these days? Living in the house. (laughs) That's it. Don't care. As long as I live here. I need to trade the leg. For yeah. the lifestyle. For the lifestyle. And we get a bo- um, We end up with a yes. boxing Helena kind of scenario. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not talk about that movie. Um, <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, so then Paul continues to share his concerns with Frankenstein, saying, like, where is the brain to come from? And an evil look falls upon Frankenstein's face, saying, I'll get it. By the guise of looking at an old painting, Frankenstein then, in a later scene, pushes a professor to his death from a balcony. Just a small push. He will then, he will stop. Jeez, that was brutal. He it was, like, was pretty I brutal. He, like, caved his head in on the floor. I thought, oh, that would have destroyed the brain there. Because he almost gets yeah, first yeah. into the floor, and I'm like, Jesus. Jesus. Well, for someone that's so concerned later on with protecting the precious brain mm. at all costs, I'm like, come yeah. on, come up with a better no, way bit of, of a, knocking yeah. the guy off rather than stab going, him. I'm going to go to the top <laughs> of the flight of stairs. Yeah, something, in his, something in his drink or something. Yeah, yeah. poison. Although yeah. poison would oh, affect yeah, the brain too. Yeah. Slit his throat, come on. Yeah. Big so Slit his throat and then say it was an accident. Yeah. It was a shaving accident. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> Would work if it was Dracula. So, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so anyway, so uh, th- then we get the funeral and, uh, and, and then the moment comes where he goes to steal the body from the crypt and Frankenstein starts to cut out the brain and transport it into a jar. Um, Paul discovers Frankenstein having been suspicious of his activities and they struggle the jar is broken and Frankenstein fears that the brain is damaged Paul once more asks Elizabeth to leave warning that stain would be dangerous at which point Frankenstein meanwhile continues with his experiments Frankenstein goes to Paul to assist as he uh, needs two people to operate the machinery he encourages Paul to agree by threatening Elizabeth's life but it is all too late as the creature has arisen. Bandaged up, he pulls back the bandages from his face to reveal the heavily made-up Christopher Lee. Yay! Um, I like the makeup. He looked like he'd actually been in water for quite some time. It had that, yeah. that, that, that water damage, yeah, wrinkliness. Which is an interesting point you'll bring up there too because this goes back to what I was saying at the preface when Hammer had their hands tied where they couldn't actually... 
do anything that looked like Universal's mm. creation, mm. and hence why they they've not they don't in the in the titles they don't call it the monster they call it the creature, mm. um, and um, and the makeup is completely different yeah. too. And so that was. But I think it works. I, mean, I do. Yeah, you know, I've, out of all of the Frankenstein's, I think that's probably the most realistic of the makeups. Yeah. Um, even compared to you know that that De Niro one. Yeah, um, yeah. In many ways as well, like we studied Frankenstein, the actual book mm-hmm. in school, yeah. and in many ways I see this one aligning far more. And you mm. can see how they did have to go back to the original text. Yes, and, you know, true, yeah. Focusing as well on sort of going, it's not so much the creature. The creature is almost this. You know, victim. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sure. Human, which yeah, which I think it's was such a product, isn't yeah, it? which yeah, I think such a stroke of genius for mm. Jimmy Sangster to mm. have done that in mm. the script because it really, I mean, like you see it in in later editions of the Frankenstein franchise too that um, you know both Sangster and Cushing start to really play with the role and yeah, it goes goes in really cool directions and yeah, the guy's evil. <laughs> Um, which is all the more uh, beneficial for us people who watch it. So, yeah, so then um, we then have um, Paul and Frankenstein uh, approach the room and find the creature, uh, and the creature tries to kill Frankenstein, but Paul intervenes. Despite this, the first words that Frankenstein utters is, I did it, Paul. So he's still bent on um, the fact that he's involved with his experimentations and it's proven successful thus far. Frankenstein insists on continuing but Paul has had enough and bids farewell. It uh, wh- took him long enough. Yeah, that's right. Mm. I'm leaving just after I've Again. had this sandwich. <laughs> um, the creature at this point escapes and Frankenstein calls upon Paul to help find it. Cut to a blind man in the woods, his grandson goes to fetch some water whilst the blind man rests. The creature stumbles across him. The blind man is terrified for his life, and the creature looks on, bewildered. He ventures forth, and he reaches out his hand. The grandson overhears his grandpa's cry and goes in search. Interesting fact here, the director had painted the leaves red on the shot as the boy walks off into the woods. Oh, the symbolism. To signify um, his impending doom. Doom and Doom and gloom. Frankenstein and Paul, uh, at this point, then stumble upon the creature in the woods, and Paul shoots him in the face, killing him. Yeah, that was a good shot. <laughs> blind, blinding shot. Right. <laughs> a little more brain damage. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. Um, so they bury, they end up then burying the creature deep in the woods, and there was a marked difference in the opinions between Paul and Frankenstein at this point too. Paul, obviously, good riddance, and Frankenstein, you know, not so happy. Um, and then Paul tells Frankenstein that he's officially going to leave. No, I really am. I'm going to leave. I've had my sandwich. I've <laughs> taken all the towels. I might just get a drink first. Can I get a glass of I'm going to go via the whiskey bar. Um, Frankenstein willingly lets him go, but it is soon revealed that he has ulterior motives. We follow him into the lab where the creature's carcass is hung. I'll give you life again, he says. At this point, the maid then confronts Paul about marrying Elizabeth, much to Frankenstein's delight. She declares that she is pregnant and threatens to blackmail him about his experiments. The maid then sneaks up in, upstairs to seek the proof that she so desires. She hides in the corridor as Frankenstein leaves the lab. She then sneaks inside, whereupon she discovers the creature, now alive again. She tries to escape, but Frankenstein has locked the door, and she is descended upon by the creature. 
Job done. Mm. Got rid of that. You know, just lock her in the room. <laughs> That's it. Run away. Yeah. Let, let the creature do its... Deal with it. Deal with it. Yeah. Ugh. So she she sneaks in... Oh, sorry. So after that, um, in the next scene, Frankenstein and Elizabeth talk of wedding plans. And Elizabeth tells Such him... Such a good segue. Yeah, yeah. Lovely. He knocks his, his strumpet. <laughs> his strumpet. Right. Well, on to... Wedding plans. <laughs> <laughs> Swears a bit of good. It's now. Um, so Elizabeth tells him that she's invited Paul. He replies that this is good as there is something he'd like Paul to see. The evening before the wedding day, Elizabeth once again asks if she can go to the lab, but Frankenstein denies her. At which point Paul returns and goes to the lab to surprise Frankenstein, who appears pleased to see him. Paul is soon left aghast at the appearance of the chained up creature. Uh, the creature, interestingly, appears to be afraid of Paul. So it's almost like there's a memory thing mm. going on because of mm. having seen him. Well, because he killed him. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if that, you saw that, that too. That a bit of an impression, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, Frankenstein tells the creature to get up. It willingly obliges, and Frankenstein appears to have a command over the creature. Frankenstein again blames Paul for the abomination before them because of the damaged brain. Paul threatens to tell the authorities and destroy the creature to make Frankenstein pay. They struggle, but Paul frees himself and runs off. Frankenstein follows, but not without evoking Elizabeth's curiosity. She ventures into the lab and comes across the, the lab and Frankenstein's workings. The monster has managed to free himself from the chains and has climbed up onto the roof. Paul and Frankenstein see the monster. Elizabeth then ventures onto the roof upon hearing a noise. Frankenstein runs up the stairs and grabs his gun. He climbs onto the roof and sees a gas lamp, realising that Elizabeth is up there too. He tries to shoot the monster, but instead hits Elizabeth. <laughs> Which is funny. It was a stupid shot. <laughs> yeah. like, oh, I'm sorry, it's going to go around and bend and get the monster. Mag- magic bullet theory. <laughs> it's, it's all about the angle, the ricochet. Oh. Right. Oops. <laughs> um, he shoots the creature afterwards, but it continues to advance. He grabs the lamp and throws it at the creature, which begins to burn. The creature then crashes through the window and plummets to its death. All the evidence is then destroyed. We cut back to the cell as Frankenstein finishes his story. Paul has come to pay him a visit, at which point Paul demand, uh, sorry, Frankenstein demands that Paul tells the priest about the creature he made and that he didn't kill Justine the maid as he has as has been proclaimed he just locked the door he just locked the door Uh, paul declares ignorance realizing that paul won't help frankenstein threatens paul but the guards pull him off paul leaves frankenstein in despair paul then meets up with elizabeth saying there's nothing we can do for him now we finish with frankenstein being led to the guillotine close credits I wanted to see him guillotined. You want to see him guillotined? I, I wanted a bit more blood, but you know. A bit more blood. Not enough blood in this movie. Not period. enough blood. Modern, <laughs> modern, modern perceptions coming into mm. play. So, Elizabeth, that whole. Was it a dream after. Because I don't get. Like, Elizabeth is alive right at the end. Yes. She, she survived the gunshot or it didn't happen? No, I think she survived she it. She survived it. Because I, yeah, I, I think she gets shot up in her shoulder. You know what? I kind of went, oh, maybe it didn't happen. Maybe he, he after the original Frankenstein, for some reason I felt, felt that after the Frankenstein gets killed first off, yeah. that's when he starts going crazier and crazier and crazier. And all, 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 I mean, already he's, he's completely and utterly narcissistic. Oh, 
and is mad yeah. for his own narcissism mm. and that it just gets even worse and worse and worse and I got the sure. impression that he was just going slightly and slightly crazy so which point does, do you think the dream kicks in like, I think yeah, when they kill Frankenstein the first time and oh, after he gets, he's shot him and then, yeah. and then he actually takes on the role of, of, of the monster instead yeah. Yeah. and then he believes he actually oh. is the monster and that's why when interpretation. he gets done he gets done, killing, clever interpretation. <laughs> he gets done for clever uh, killing the um, uh, the maid the maid yeah. and he actually did it and yeah they, they say oh you did you killed killed her yeah yeah and I, so I was like well maybe he actually did it in, in and, it and he took on the role sort of you know him imagining things and projecting right yeah mm-hmm. and doing a you know caught up in his own mania almost a Dr. Jekyll Mr. Hyde yeah yeah thing. yeah which is essentially what the monster is yes exactly it's the sort yeah. of outward you know the, a normal looking man but the madness within that, yeah, you know, yeah, the, the that's right. Really and and, that. and you can see throughout, he's kind of slowly getting madder and madder, and in, in, in the end, and then in the end, he looks like completely and utterly insane. Yeah. And uh, so that's why yes, I was like, well, maybe right. his his own narcissism has taken over him because he's so like up his own ass. Yeah, yeah. You like, could get no. He's sent, yeah, and it, like he's look what I did. I'm amazing, and I did this, yeah, and I did yeah. this. And Paul, how could you do this to me? It's all your fault. That's why it went wrong. And yeah, yeah. So yeah. you know, it's a classic. Right. And so I guess that's, that no, that's great. Sure. Like that, yeah. the reason why that's also interesting is because Jimmy Sangster, who wrote this, um, very much favoured kind of more um, like thriller based um, mm. stuff. And so, like you see it a lot in the later Hammer canon, where they they kind of go down that line. And it was in a, in a, a group of films that they dubbed uh, Mini Hitchcocks because mm. that similar kind of vein. And a lot of it is is about the mind and the instability of the mind, which kind of goes back to what you're saying yeah. about how we're basically seeing the collapse of Frankenstein's mind mm. laid out. I mean, it's a real obvious switch. No, I mean, I, but, I, I didn't, yeah, I didn't I see that know. personally. I kind of, I, I think I watched it literally as it, it was being unfolded, mm. and, and I read it that because there was no proof of the creature because it had been destroyed, mm. the, um, and because it was all kept secret, you know, in the lab, the only person that knew that the creature existed mm. were Paul and, um, and Elizabeth, mm. um, and they are denying its existence so it only for the for the for the uh, rounding it up in a very yeah. moralistic way yeah. that can only mean that it's strengthened that's it exactly exactly which yeah. you know, is justified really because yeah, yeah. at the end of the day he mightn't have actually killed the maid there's certain no. things mm. you know that he, right. his creature yeah. did but it was always at his it's bidding, an extension so. of himself yeah absolutely mm. absolutely no but mm. that's a really cool interpretation though. it oh, makes me want to rewatch it now yeah. with that in mind I mean check, <laughs> so. check it out again after because they bury the monster in, in, in the forest yes and then have a look at the monster when he's hanging again yeah. and I don't think he's that dirty or anything no, I think he's just like he's just okay. how he was before. And, and Elizabeth coming back was a bit of a shock. Like yeah. I, I did take it quite literally of oh she must have survived. Yeah, but it yeah. wasn't as if there was any clue of like you know she had a cane or she mm. had a cast or any sort of you know, mm. looking pale and wan and injured. And I'm thinking gunshot like, wounds back then are the realistic form. You know, the septicemia alone would have killed her. <laughs> you, you wouldn't expect her to be having to wander around the room. It's just not realistic. Come on, Hannah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's um, let's uh, just a couple of notes on on the film itself before um, we then we then shift into talking about the players of the piece. Um, 
interestingly, as we've already mentioned, there's more emphasis on, on Frankenstein than his creation in this one, and we've touched on that, and I think that's actually a really uh, cool direction that Hammer went in um, to differentiate it, too, from the Universal Studios films. Um, another bit of a fact um, here, when Christopher Lee, uh, who plays the monster, is shot in the eye, the blood pack held in his hand um, uh, kind of uh, seeps into... Uh, uh, under his contact lens that he's wearing the, the blood and uh, causes ir- irritation and he wasn't actually able to see properly for about three to four days oh, afterwards. And, that's, uh, that's suffering <laughs> well, and this is the thing he, he became he because be- uh, uh, invariably a lot of the time Lee played the monsters in mm. ham films and um, was always bemoaning and was subjected to a lot of uh, at the time experimented kind of forms <laughs> of uh, Effects. And I tried to yeah. think what was in that blood mixture. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So no, well, you know, you suffer for your art, as they say. Also, um, just another thing is Milton Sabotsky, one of the original writers of, of the Curse's first draft, would then go on to found Amicus, which was Hammer's mm. chief competition throughout the sixties and seventies. Right. Um, and also Patrick Troughton, who uh, is the second doctor. That. Played a part in the film, which would then be cut from the final reel. Now, I thought he was—he was the mid, you know, the, the, the hands and the, and the voice. I don't know who he is. I, think I he's just the was the guy like, who hands over the eyes. You know that oh, locked off shot. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's going, and it sounds like he's got that West Country accent. Yeah, a bit you're probably right. He, he had so, and so yeah. Meredith Blesser is looking a bit nonplussed. Pa- Patrick Troughton is the second Doctor in Doctor Who, uh, yeah. from, a, from that kind of thing. He also has appeared in a couple of if other Hammer films. People listening to this could see how their faces are <laughs> sharp and glowing. And it's yeah. Nerd alert! Nerd it's, alert! It's, you mentioned Doctor Who, and it's like <gasps> Mitchell Mania style. I'm surprised the ant isn't running down. That's going, right, screaming yeah, out yeah. the window. <laughs> give it time. Give it time. <laughs> Um, and the last thing to just mention is that the the whole of the movie is shot at Down Place, which would then be known as Bray Studios. This would become the home of Hammer, oh, and cool. a lot of stuff was shot shot there. All right, let's uh, let's move swiftly on. Let's look at the uh, we're at our halfway mark, so let's look at the players of the piece. We can't go any further than talking about Peter Cushing first and foremost, who plays Victor Frankenstein here. Um, director Freddie Francis, not of this movie, but. Uh, director Freddie Francis would actually state that the luckiest thing that ever happened to Hammer was Peter Cushing. Mm. Um, interestingly, Cushing was uh, contracted to double for Louis Hayward in James Wells' The Man in the Iron Mask mm. and made a brief on screen appearance as the messenger. So, a bit of a connection there to the Universal Studios. Um, he would um, rub shoulders, Peter Cushing, this is, would rub shoulders with the likes of Laurel and Hardy, Carol Lombard, and Lawrence, Lawrence, sorry, Lawrence Olivier early in his career. But the defining point in his life was when he met actress Helen Beck, the love of his life, and would go on to marry her in April 1943. TV would provide his greatest success early on, starring in adaptations of Pride and Prejudice and 1984, to name but two. In fact, his most known collaboration would actually come with Hammer Productions, but it was he who initiated the relationship. Upon hearing that the role of Frankenstein was up for grabs, he inquired, and this generated huge interest from the production house at the very thought of um, someone like Cushing and his acting caliber being attached to the product. After a screening of the then-unreleased X, The Unknown, film which Hammer produced 
and released, Cushing agreed to sign the contract as impressed as he was with their initiative. The rest, as they say, was history, and we would see Cushing time and time again portraying the likes of Frankenstein, Van Helsing and Gustav Veal on screen, to name a few. Eventually, though, bad news would reach Cushing on in April, sorry, in January 1971, as his wife Helen sadly passed away. The devastation broke him down so much that he was never truly the same afterwards. He would go on to quote that the only antidote to that devastation was work. In his final years, Cushing would, Cushing would be introduced to a new generation with his portrayal of Grand Moff in Star Wars, and later the film adaptation of Biggles, his final feature film, Classic. having been diagnosed with cancer. I'm laughing because the film's not that great. I saw, it, I saw that <laughs> in the cinema. Really? Kid. Yeah, I loved it. Wow. Really? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I was a big, was a I was a big fan. Biggles, well, so was I, but I... Yeah, went, but, yeah the movie was it, okay, but I... I the whole you know, adventure's in time. Yeah, I, I think it was just me. In fact, I got to go to the cinema, so... Yeah, maybe. I myself. Yeah. Ah, cool, yeah. cool, cool, cool. I get so. it. So in, uh, in 1989, Cushing received an OBE and provided with the title The Gentleman of Horror. Mm-hmm. Such was his reputation. On 11th of August 1994, he passed away, but will always be embedded in the minds of those fortunate enough to know him or merely witness his charismatic presence on screen. It's like, I can't see... Like, for me, nobody has nailed the character... Victor Frankenstein since we've seen Cushing on, on screen and even before um, I think he's so good in this and just the, the little intonations that he has in, oh, in certain lines is just see I've never seen this film, this one before sure. and I, I don't think I've ever seen him as good as, as in this role the, when at the end when he's completely mad you're just going holy shit this guy can act and he's great. He's yeah. absolutely awesome. Yeah. But every every film that Peter Cushing's in, yeah. of the Hammer Enterprise, whatever yes. you wish to call it, he's the standout mm. in every oh, single yeah. I've never yeah. seen yeah. a romantic lead, though. Like, no. He's always the romantic lead, especially the way he's womanising ways. Like, yeah, yeah. He's like, I holy shit. With that. I, wasn't, I think it's because I'm so used to seeing him, you know, hunting oh. vampires <laughs> and all yeah. sorts yeah. of those That's shenanigans. Right. But when he's having a pash with, you know... Strumpet made. I'm just like, Peter, no, you're, you're dead to me now. But no, he was, he was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, as yeah. And as Miles said, you know, the, the acting chops that the man mm. had oh, were so super. phenomenal. Phenomenal, phenomenal. Yeah, he's. Yeah, I mean, like you, you all know how much I think this guy is such an amazing actor, and like um, a credit to not just Britain but mm. the horror genre. Um, in what he brought to it and you know not just Hammer because he was in a lot of Amicus movies mm. too as well and yeah the guy was was a genius um, okay so let's um, let's look at some of the other players uh, let's look at um, Elizabeth she's played by Hazel Court Hammer Glamour Hammer Glamour now she well, interestingly she was the first pin up girl for Hammer Horror she would also star in The Man Who Cheated Death for the production company too um, she released a book called Horror Queen and Carreras actually spoke of her quite highly, um, saying she never looked lovelier than in Curse of Frankenstein, and they went mad over her in America. And um, this was at a point when, like, she didn't really get a lot of she success. She was quite glamorous after. in this. Like, yeah. Yeah, as and far as so was, was sort of, you know, kind of a bit slutty-looking... Yeah, like, well, yeah, yeah. Horror, it, hammer horror. As, as it goes down yeah. that line, down well, the track. Maybe that yeah. was symptomatic as 
well that mm. this is mm. that little bit earlier. Yeah. Yes. That, that it was a bit classier. Yeah, yeah, the launch yeah. factor's not so much into mm. it. Like, by the time you hit the, the, like it doesn't the have, hammers of the 70s. It doesn't have the launch factor and it doesn't have the blood factor. Like, yeah. it's, no. there's, there's very little gore in it. No. Which is the amazing right. thing, especially about the classification of it initially, yeah. when you're sort of like, whoa, we've come yeah. a long way. Mm. Well, this is a, the interesting point as well with the, the whole, uh, when you look at the hammer cannon, like, this is, I mean, they, they made their, like, small success with, uh, you know, uh, the Quatermass experiment movies and X the Unknown. Um, and it was off the back of that that they were able to look into doing this. But this is like the first point where they had the formula right and they had all the right players, the directors and, and the writers and the editors. Like, this this was Hammer and the birth of what Hammer would become. Um, and yeah, you're right, there wasn't as much blood and gore which they were um, they became um, known for down the track but they kind of as as we follow their journey that becomes more embellished as we mm-hmm. go along and they start looking and experimenting in that direction and it becomes raunchier and you know the, the needle starts pointing towards the more carry on kind of side of things mm. with yeah it, the, with the, the, the bosoms become yes. more heaving and blood exactly. splashing as yeah. time goes by exactly um, but what, what do we think oh sorry I haven't finished uh, on her her um, after um, Curse her, her, her reputation on Curse kind of actually revitalised her career for a period there she wasn't really kind of doing much at the time um, and she would actually go on to star in another three gothic films for Roger Corman um, including The Mask of the Red Death which would be her last major film role um, what, what do we think of her in this movie though I mean it, you know she has I guess a, a role to play I mean she's the innocence in the mm, movie yeah um, I, I guess the only thing is she doesn't act like very well for someone that's had a gunshot yeah. wound in the um, Victorian era. Yeah. But apart from that, I think you know she did encapsulate that whole you know the innocent, the whole mm. sort of duty bound girl yeah. going you know I'm destined to marry yeah, yeah. Frankenstein, and she's so you know she's frustrating in that she's mm. so blinkered to that oh you won't yeah. let me in your lab mm. ah, but that that's what that character's supposed to be and it's that's supposed right. to be this innocence in the, the face of this you know yeah. man that is supposed to be respectable upper class. Mm-hmm. And and, and, and she's a psychopath, and so. and and her character is actually kind of um, she's a perfect counterpart beholden to him too mm. because he has actually kind of been like since they were young and he became the, the truth. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but he's also you know he was effectively her guardian too because yeah. he was given money to support her. Um, so yeah, interesting. All right, let's um, let's look at Robert Urquhart who plays Paul Kemp. Such a good last. Um, <laughs> yeah, he um, he's probably uh, best known for his roles in like detective or war genres, and would actually become a familiar face on Brit- British TV. Screens. I've seen him in loads of things. Like, yeah. uh, and he's in one of my favourite films of all time, which is Patania and Kipper Bang. Yes, um, the headmaster in that. And yeah. Like, Awesome film. Yeah. I highly recommend it if you get, get a chance to see it. It's like a it's a coming of age um, thing about yeah. love, basically teenage love. Oh. But it's directed by um, Michael Apted, ah. and it's absolutely okay, amazing. It, yeah, it's it's really it's one of those forgotten classics. Yeah, but no, everybody right. in everybody in England's seen it. So mm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But, um, no, you're right. I'm glad you mentioned that too because it mm. kind of differs a slightly a bit from some of the ones I've mentioned. Um, but it just goes to highlight how how strong an actor he was, mm. and he was actually known for his dramatic roles as well, mm. and, and and being able to produce that. 
Um, so I kind of just mentioned um, just in here that he was a you know in Wing Commander uh, played sorry Wing Commander McPherson in the Pathfinders for a period of time, and I also wrote his notable role as Mike in the film Dunkirk, which was such a big mm. war film in its day. Um, now in- another thing I found interesting is apparently according to Hazel Court, um, Urquhart walked out halfway through the premiere of the film as he was disgusted at how gruesome the film was. He, it also prompted him to steer clear of horror films after then. Although, interestingly, he did turn up in an episode of Hammer House of Horror entitled Children of the Full Moon. Ah. Um, but yeah, no, he pretty much stuck to drama after that. Wow, all those Bunsen burners filled with Ribena and tomato sauce. That's it. won't have it, I tell you. Okay, so he's the voice of reason in this movie. Um, yeah. And I, you know, again, I think it was a good performance. You know? Oh, look, him and um, Cushing bouncing off each other, I thought it was, it was great. Yeah. They were two very strong actors just... just yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a very, very cool performance, mm. and um, yeah, and delivered with stability too. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah, cool. All right, let's uh, move on to somebody called Christopher Lee. Oh, who's he? Uh, yeah. <laughs> he plays the creature in this movie, and you know what can be said about Christopher Lee that hasn't been said already. Mm. Um, this is his first Hammer film, and importantly, his first collaboration with Cushing. And an, and in this instance, an iconic horror duo was born. Um, I was going to say you can't you can't pick between them. No, yeah. no, that's right, that's right. Like, it, look, this is a, I love this. I wrote this quote that Cushing said: "You could always tell when Christopher arrived at the studio because you could hear his great voice singing, <laughs> but when he got all his makeup and stuff on, it kept him a little quieter." <laughs> um, so, in, a little insight into his observations. Was he singing his heavy metal stuff. <laughs> yeah, who knows. <laughs> Well, he was a trained in... Uh, he trained in opera, too. Wow. So you can imagine just kind of... It's around booming voice. voice. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's fantastic. Always um, jealous of that voice. Lee, Lee would often cite, as I mentioned earlier, his troubles with Hammer in the makeup and effects department, as it was often he who would go through numerous transformations for the screen. I've mentioned the gunshot incident, but in the resurrection scene, he, had, he actually had boiling hot water poured over him Jesus. numerous times to get the effect of steam coming off his body. <laughs> Now, that's dedication. That's really suffering. <laughs> um, cast um, as he was then, uh, he was a, practically an unknown. He would then go on to play the title or role of Dracliff, we've mm. spoken about in previous podcasts, um, along with Sir Henry in The Hound of the Baskervilles, The Mummy, Bilali in um, She. He played Rasputin, the Mad Monk, and Father Michael in To the Devil, a Daughter, to merely skim across the surface of his work that he would bring to Hammer Productions. Um, you can actually check out more um, in an article we've put up on our website about Christopher Lee, a bit of a profile on him. Um, let's talk about him here, though, as the creature. What, what did you, how did you find his portrayal as the doomed creature? He's good, but he's, you know, it's, it's such a... It's, it's almost a non-role, like because yeah. Cushing's kind of got it's, the it's main, Cushing's. It's Cushing's. He's got the line yeah. yeah. I was reading something actually on, on um, IMDb. It, it says uh, apparently Christopher Lee stormed into um, uh, the seat Cushing and said, "I've got no." After reading the script, said, "I've got no lines." Cushing kindly responded, "You're lucky I've read the script." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it's mainly Cushing's. Cushing's Film anyway. Oh yeah, so through and through. Of, yeah, but he's yeah. good. I mean, he's good. He's he'd get his manner. Right. He's Dracula. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I was going to say that 
having seen the Dracula series of films, yeah. he owns that. Yeah, and, that's know, right. When, he, when he's then, allowed to speak. When he's allowed to speak. It's, it's, it's an ongoing yeah. thing for him. It's like you can hear all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is kind of a waste of that voice, isn't it? Of course. I mean, like, he he would get his moment, though. Like, Rasputin is... is, I mean, we haven't spoken about Rasputin yet on this podcast series. Um, But, yeah, like, it's definitely one that he has a a closer connection with. And Mm -hmm. his performance is is outstanding in that, too. I even like his role as Bilali in She as well. It's quite quite a good role he has in that. But um, that's an aside. Um, but you're right, I agree. Like In this instance, um, he kind of is just a stock mould of, of the monster. And you do pity him in places. Mm. And that's something where um, his performance does come through. You know, he's got a lot of makeup on there. And there's moments where you do feel for the, char- mm. uh, the character of the creature. Uh, and that's a big testament to, to his abilities. Well, definitely that he can make him somewhat, maybe not relatable, but you mm. do, you know, you do feel that pity and you mm. do sort of go, oh, you poor sort of innocent vessel of... Because <laughs> you get the impression that the script, it was like, it was very kind of one-dimensional. Yeah. And it does bring a lot. It's the creature. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. So. And yeah. it's more than just, it goes beyond yeah. just the makeup and the yeah, that's right. Exactly. I mean, even in that scene when he when he first stumbles across the blind man, mm. and that and that moment of confusion because he, it's the first mm. time somebody sees him mm. and is instantly frightened of him, and he finds that response. Mm. I say sees him, <laughs> the guy's blind, but you that's know what, what I mean. I found really um, that scene. It's, yeah. it's like rustling in the bushes. You just go, oh, it's a bunny. But he instantly, it's Christopher Lee. He instantly uh, knows fear when it's mm. uh, upon him. You see. All right, cool. Well, okay, that's Christopher Lee. Let's uh, whistle through some of the uh, two of the other kind We're of. Talking about the monster actors. role, I yeah, read sorry. also that Bernard Breslau was. In the yeah, he was originally. Yeah, yeah. I was like, that would be um, completely and utterly different. Yeah, oh, he's completely. like the wacky giant in um, the Carry On films. Oh, good grief! <laughs> it would have been um, just weird. He did turn up in a in a. Uh, I think it was Hammer's first uh, stint at trying to do. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Oh, okay. I think it was called The Ugly Duckling, which was a bit of a spoof thing. Yeah. Didn't go down very well. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> but let's uh, let's look at two of the other players of the piece. Um, and there's Melvin Hayes, who would play the oh. young Victor. Yeah. Now, he would go on to play the artful Dodger in 1962's TV series adaptation of Oliver Twist. So that was spot on casting. I yeah. never would have picked him. And I was like, yeah. holy shit, he just completely embodies... Little um, shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, I've, yeah, never, really. I've, never, I've never seen him look straight and behave straighter as well. No. Like, he's the less, least camp I have ever seen him play any role. No, no, no that's right. That's mm. right. And he's like, uh, yeah, perfect casting in this too. Like the, oh, the similarities and yes. the, the, with Cushing as well. They should have done more roles as like younger, <laughs> <laughs> like father son. That's right. That would have been genius. Yeah. Um, look, he would also play um, Sir Gordon in Drop the Dead Donkey, which was a classic mm. series, and uh, has recently been seen playing Michael Rawlins in Extenders. Oh, um, I haven't seen him in Extenders. Yeah, it's kind of a. Oh, he may have even. I still love him in it. It ain't half hot man. Yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, so good. Yeah, just the best. That was his his show, basically. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Again, he owned that. Mm. Um, but yeah, like, like like as we said, like I thought he was suitably apt at playing mm. the spoilt little uh, child who comes into um, uh, the estate and then has the luxury to kind of do what he wants to do. And, mm. and he, like he, the first uh, scene with. Um, uh, Robert Urquhart's character Paul Kemp 
alone. I just love that interaction where yeah. he presumes he's the son of, of the uh, person who's there. But it does yeah. set up a, a, another interesting sort of train of thought in my brain about how, um, you know, you've got this entitled little boy that's, you know, king of his big mansion mm. and has his, all this money behind him and can be a little brat to adults and sort of yep. push out the door his auntie, you know, who's asking <laughs> yeah. for money, hire his tutor. And That's it. You can sort of see the, 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 the monster, the true monster yeah. of the piece. Yeah. Start yeah. nice and early. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's not like um, the character changes in any way. He, he is a, he just gets a worse bastard. And worse. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's um, look at Valerie Gaunt, who would play Justine, the, the maid doomed to... Um, interact with Frankenstein in the wrong way um, so look we, we at HHP are familiar with Valerie with her performance in Dracula mentioned in our Dracula edition um, in both movies she plays a wicked soul as vampires in the aforementioned movie and the wayward maid here not, not much else is known about her really apart from being rather trained as she prefers to remain enigmatic on her roles she would however be the precursor of the predatory villainess that would come to define Hammer Horror um I, I liked her in this movie. I think, like, she, you know, it, really liked the way that um, she tries to manipulate Frankenstein into... into she was quite a, a strong female character. She's like, certainly yeah. had more uh, guts than Elizabeth. Yeah, yes, yeah, that's right. yeah, exactly. And it, that would have been, like, quite a rarity for mm. know, these... To have a strong female character in a, in a horror, like, yeah. or a, any kind of sort of thriller role. That's right, yeah. Um, so she back then, what was it, 1952? Yeah, six, I think, yeah. Was it 56? And so, yeah, it would have been, you know, apart from Hitchcock, there was any, there's any really Hitchcock doing those female roles. You know, yeah, horror, that's right, that's right, exactly. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I thought I thought she was good. Um, all right, let's let's start looking at some of the the big core players of the piece now. The director Terence Fisher, um, look, he's still revered today as one of the finest British directors in the industry. He would take on the directorial duties as contracted to Hammer for his proven ability in another film called Four Sided Triangle. A bit more of a science fiction bent, but there's a lot of lab experimentation things going on there too. So a bit of a similarity. Um, an important cog in the wheel that would set up Hammer's tone and voice moving forward, he would direct such classics as Dracula, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, five of the actual Frankenstein movies, um, The Mummy, The Curse of the Werewolf, The Phantom of the Opera, and, and The Devil Rides Out, to name just a few of his his works. Um, like, I, I think the reason why I'm saying he's an important cog in the wheel is because it's, it's his direction that would... Um, Set up the the playing field moving forward, and because it was this movie was such a success, that that was the mold that they would move with going well, forward. I think that's the thing. Now we look back on it and go, oh yeah, that's typical of that genre. Like yeah. this, mm. this is establishing <coughs> that genre. From that's the right. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, he's very good. And so, like, coupled with um, writer Jimmy Sangster, um, who's another highly important member of Hammer. Uh, would be the you know the screenwriter for most of uh, Hammer's more successful films, um, and he was you know charged with bringing the re- or reinventing Franken- the Frankenstein story to the screen, um, and it's his shifting focus on the character of Frankenstein as opposed to his creation that I think is the stroke of genius here, coupled with the gore and sex factor that his style would become synonymous with. 
Hammer later down the track, and he built his career around it too. Mm-hmm. Like he he dubbed himself Jimmy the Nasty Sangster for, for the amount of work that he would put into it, and also not just because of the the crude gore factor and, and the sexual kind of interplay that he would um, use within his films, but also because he was very good at turning around scripts really quickly. Uh, and I think he even said, "Do you want it good or fast?" Um, as one of his stock responses. So um, you know, he knew that so most of the time they just needed it fast, so mm. it would be a dirty script. <laughs> so, but yeah, no credit to him too. And then um, I just also want to mention um, cinematographer Jack Asher too was very fundamental at the early stages. He was closely associated with Hammer, working on Dracula, The Revenge of Frankenstein, The Hound of the Baskervilles, The Mummy, Mummy, and many more. And it was his visual style that would captivate the feel that Hammer would invoke. And the success that was created after the fact has a lot to do with his expertise behind the lens. Mm. Um, So big nod to him. Um, Other notable nods, editor James Needs, makeup artist Philip Leakey, who was charged with making the monster looking nothing like Universal's Karloff interpretation. And bloody good job we did. Bloody good job too, as we mentioned. Very cool. The prune, nicely done. (laughs) Um, And then also stuntman Jack Easton. Um, and I want to mention him because particularly for posing as the hanging corpse at the gallows, um, which was cut down, you know, cushion cut down, because, um, you know, basically uh, the dummy that they used just didn't, didn't work. It just looked like a dummy. So he went up there, hung himself up there and was cut down. Um, Did he do the, um, the professor diving off the um, balcony? He may well have done, actually, yeah. Anything that was those kind of stunts, yeah. Awesome. Um, and he would be uh, quite a, a go-to person in the early stages for the stunt work. Um, and finally, Bernard Robinson for the glorious score we hear running throughout the movie. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. All right, so that wraps everything up with, with, our, with the, the movie, the players that uh, were involved and the directors and such. Um, so let's talk about thoughts on the movie as a whole. What do we think? I'll go to Meredith first. Um, I really enjoyed it. Mm. Um, obviously having been through a round of Hammer films before and seeing that evolution from very much the 50s, being a bit tamer, going into the raunch era, it was nice actually coming back to here's the foundations of this genre Mm. when it's not being cliched and it's Mm. it's not, you know, this is all new and fresh. Yes. I think that's the thing especially I found intriguing with the, oh, this was really X-rated at the time. Yes. That, you know, the the content is horrifying. Yeah. But it's nice that... You know, they can portray that without, you know, there is gore, but it's yeah. nice to know you don't need that much gore, that, you know, your subject matter and the way it's performed and, yeah. you know, that evil that Cushing brought to the, the film yeah. is enough to be quite bloody oh, terrifying. Oh, yeah, totally. absolutely, absolutely. Come and, on. you know, it was well made, it was mm. well shot, lit, you know, it was just, it was a great, it was a great film. Great movie, yeah. Miles? Oh, yeah, I mean, I really liked it. It was... And because and, I had a different take on it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> probably <course>. anybody else. <laughs> and I was like, well, I, 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 afterwards I, I felt far out. That was a, that was such a clever film. Mm. And and if it, if it had been what I what I believe it to be about, yeah, 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 it's really clever. <laughs> if not, it's still if not, yeah, it's still it's still pretty damn good as well. Yeah, so, yeah. And pushing with less of a sunken cheek than mm. any other film I've seen. Yeah. That's just, one thing I had to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, look, you know, it's they, it's you look back at this, and it's such a historical moment in film. 
um, and such a, uh, a brave move that all those involved with Hammer actually attempted to make at that mm. point in time. They were a little-known com- British company. They'd made a small success, as I said, with their Quater Mass uh, films and, and X the Unknown, very more science fiction-based. Mm. Um, and this was a chance for them to to step into a new world, and it could easily have sunk. Mm. Um, and it makes you wonder what what they must have thought when it was when they first pushed it out, and those within those first few weeks when. Um, Critics were panning it in Britain. So this is the most successful Hammer horror f- film. I or? think it's not. I think it was Dracula, Prince of Darkness, mm. that would be the like the third Dracula mm. installment, which became because by that point they'd done the Frankenstein, Dracula, and Mummy films, mm. and then and then this was like I mean, even though Brides of Dracula was made, but that didn't have Cushion uh, or Lee in it. Mm. So let's face it, it's not really part of the canon, even though it does mention the myth of the vampire. Um, but yeah, look, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, and it tends to be the one that people remember most when, mm. when I'm talking to people on, online with things as well. Mm. It's the one that resonates most, is Dracula, Prince of Darkness, because it's the one where, where they were just, they were running with it at that point. Yeah. And it, yeah, I think that was their most successful. But this, at this point in time, like I said, they, they basically made their, they made, they were starting to make profit after th- three weeks mm. of its a release. So they had a massive like countrywide distribution for this one. Yeah, what, through Rank or something. It was. It was uh, who was that? So I think she yeah. she was contracted at like the Elizabeth. Um, let go yeah, 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 yeah. Um, was contracted under Rank. Yes, that's time. right. Yeah. Yeah, so they would just well, I know that I know that um, I can't remember if it's this instance. It might be later, just slightly later down the track, because this instance, they I think it was with Warner, they had their yeah their sort of American logo um, release, oh. um, and you know they had, and then they would later hook up with Columbia Pictures, mm. but they um, were known for uh, I think they basically held on to the release of uh, Britain and Japan essentially. Mm. Um, to release the films, which is why a lot of of the, of the stuff that survived to this day that's been found has been in Japan because yeah. of the distribution that went out that way. Yeah, well, they, um, I mean, they had their own sort of schlocky uh, industry going on. Yeah, the yes, they, time, did. So. they did. They yeah. did. Cool. No, so I'm just going to, I'll just say also yeah. that I thought the movie was is, is great and it's for me, I mean, you know, I'm coming from the, the massive hammer lover background and, um, and, it was it was really cool watching this one again and just really you know what, knowing the history behind it and what's to come. It's it's gloriously shot and uh, yes, I agree with Freddie Francis that they were very lucky to have Peter Cushing fall into the lap and provide the talent he does. Yeah. yeah, it was good. Uh, any favourite moments at all in a movie or any stand up scenes? When the um, as a DP t- uh, angle, I really like the. Um, the lamp getting thrown at the the camera, like the camera yes. lens. Yeah, yeah, that was really clever. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, there, there was just lots of really cool moments. I I, I just love the, you know, Cushing's acting throughout was just yeah, spectacular. yeah. yeah. I think for me, Cushing was yeah. the the, yep. the standout, and also that point of difference from you know Boris Karloff was always my Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I grew up on. Yeah, and that. You know, within the one film, so about an hour and 20 minutes, suddenly I've got a new Frankenstein <laughs> and that's become just as great. You can see yeah. why it's yeah, such yeah. a, you know, it's that's become right. a classic film. It's yeah. well made it's and it's a whole new take and it doesn't feel like it's 
ripping it off in any way. It, it doesn't feel like no. a lesser version of it. In Not any at way. all. It's no. Definitely a yeah. strong contender. A very strong contender indeed. Yeah. I like the um, the eye trait as well. The fact that it was just a locked off shot of just the hands almost. Yes. Mm. As they're doing the trade, you hear the voice of voices, but you just. Yeah, I kind of was waiting for that cut, uh, cutaway shot. Mm. That that was the cutaway shot ordinarily. Yeah. But they kept that as the master shot. Yes. Yes. Which is quite clever and daring of, at the time. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That, well, that's uh, James Knees was the the main editor for this movie. We mm. edit a lot of Hammer films and. Yeah, I think I did. I, I hope I mentioned him in, in the nods. If I didn't, I apologise. Um, yeah, look, I, you know, I, there's so much that I, I love about this movie. I, I agree, Cushing is massively a standout. There's some there's some good moments. I, I really liked the uh, the interplay, with, as mentioned, with Christopher Lee as he as he starts to kind of discover the world for the first time. And, um, and yeah, should mention that because it's very subtly played. Um, and it was really good, and I, I liked um, Robert Urquhart's role in it too. Mm. I think he, I thought it was really good. Yeah, exactly. um, yeah some some good shots. I mean, I liked the the soft shots that didn't make it too. The, you know, the brain shots and things like that. I thought it was cool. <laughs> yeah, I thought I thought that was at the time that would have been shocking because um, it wouldn't have been done before, and that was the reason why the then BBFC would have would have kind of been a bit ooh hold on yeah you can't do that and you know um, it probably really good. should still be just as shocking <laughs> yes indeed indeed cool alright well I think that about wraps up for uh, our discussions on The Curse of Frankenstein I'm going to be welcoming you again uh, for our next instalment where we'll just have a little look at their TV pilot um, ad- um, attempt um, which was called Tales of Frankenstein. Before then, we go into the main feature, Revenge of Frankenstein, the sequel. Thank you, Meredith. Thank, Thank you, Miles. Thank you. And we'll catch you next time. Goodbye. The Frankenstein edition, Curse of Frankenstein Discussions, was brought to you by the Hammer Horror podcast team. Your host, Paul Farrell co-hosts Miles Davies and Meredith Murphy. Music supplied by Midnight Syndicate from their album Monsters of Legend, title called Building the Monster. Check out Midnight Syndicate at www.midnightsyndicate.com. For more discussions from the Hammer Archives, check out our home address at www.midnightsyndicate.com hammerhorrorpodcast.com or why not check us out on Facebook or Twitter. Till then, we'll see you next time.